0: Our meditation this evening is on the words of the Sixth Commandment, and by extension I think we can talk about the Tenth Commandment tonight as well. The Tenth Commandment deals with coveting, which is where very many of our sins against the Sixth Commandment begin. So let's open our meditation this evening by reading through the words of those two commandments together with the explanations given to them in Luther's small catechism. You shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God, that we lead a pure and decent life in words and actions, and that husband and wife love and honor each other. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his workers, or his animals, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not force or entice away from our neighbor, his workers, or animals, but urge them to stay and do their duty. There is, I think, a lot that could be said in regards to the sixth commandment. I don't know what it would have been like to have been a pastor 150 years ago, but I imagine that treating the topic of the Sixth Commandment would have been a little bit different back then. And I I wrestled over how exactly to approach it in in a service like this where, where we're trying to keep things a little bit shorter even. And so I decided to spend the bulk of our time tonight just looking at the gifts that our God has given us this commandment to protect and then perhaps talking a little bit about the strategies we can employ to protect those gifts rather than diving into it and looking at all the different ways in which this commandment has been broken. The gifts that God gave us the sixth commandment to protect are the gifts of marriage and sex. And marriage and sex are both first laid before us in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, God gives to us the account of how he brought our entire world into creation. The first half of that chapter walks through day by day the six days of creation, showing us everything That God created, and then on day six, all of a sudden, we hit the brakes and we slow way down. The whole second half of Genesis chapter one and all of Genesis chapter two are dedicated to to showing us God's creation of the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And when we look at that account and we slow down and soak it in, there are so many incredible things that God has to teach us there. But we can't just isolate Genesis chapters 1 and 2 all by themselves. They're a part of all of God's word that he's given to us. And with the context that we get from the rest of scriptures, we gain a a frame of mind for what the motivation was that God had that led him to do all of these wonderful creative acts. The driving motivator for God was the relationship that he would have with humanity. God did all of those things he did on those six days of creation because he wanted to enjoy an everlasting relationship with you and with me. But in the beginning, you and I... We were not created. Only Adam and Eve were. Just the two of them. And when God made them, He made them in a very intentional and deliberate way, and then He joined them together into this very first marriage for some very intentional purposes, one of which became clear with the first recorded words that God spoke to those two human beings, he he created them, and then in Genesis 1, it says, he said to them, he commanded them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So right there, all the way back in the very beginning, God institutes this process that we could call procreation, forward-moving creation that the creation he had begun with everything he made during those six days was a creation that was going to continue forward into the ages to come. Because there were yet thousands, millions, even billions of human beings whom God was looking forward to cherishing an everlasting relationship with, whom he had not created during those six days of creation. But instead, he created Adam and Eve, and to them he gave the gift of sexuality. This means through which his creation would continue for generations and generations, a means through which more and more human beings would be created with the end goal of that wonderful relationship that they would be able to share with their creator God. Another purpose that God had in bringing Adam and Eve together was that purpose of relationship. When he had first created Adam, he looked at him and said, this isn't good, it is not good for him to be alone. He had the quest of all the animals coming by and Adam naming them to drive home for him the fact it is not good for me to be alone. And then God created Eve and he brought her to Adam and he joined the two of them together. And then he communicated that this was his plan, not just for them, but for all people moving forward. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's not talking about Adam. He didn't have a father and a mother. This is God saying, this is my plan. Moving forward, men and women will come together. They will be joined together in marriage. And God wanted marriage to be a part of his creation because of all of the blessings that it would be able to bring to people. It provided first a framework for the society that would develop as they increased in number, because as more and more humans were created they were going to need to learn and so it was in within this marriage framework this family framework that the additional children who would come into the world would receive their education and their nurture and protection and most importantly their training and instruction in the lord but beyond that framework god's purpose for this marriage relationship was even deeper he wanted it to be a lesson, a reflection of the far greater relationship that we share with Him. Marriage was to be a sermon to the husband and wife, but also to the children and the grandchildren and the friends and the neighbors and everyone who saw it a sermon to teach them about the love that God has for His people, specifically the love that Jesus has. For the members of his church, within a marriage between a husband and wife, the unconditional love that God has for us as sinful people is personalized in a way that no other relationship can do. So many wonderful things about marriage, and and that's not even getting into yet the way that, that God has wired us. The psalmist said, I praise you, Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's true. And part of the way that God made us is he made us to be sexual creatures. When a husband and a wife share God's gift of sex with each other, things happen in the brain. Chemicals are released, chemicals like endorphins and serotonin and oxytocin. And with the release of those chemicals, it has an effect that the love and the affection shared between the husband and wife is able to be deepened and increased, and their intimacy is able to grow. The release of those chemicals is able actually to improve their physical health and to improve the health of their relationship with each other. And and it's so incredible that it can actually start to take place. Those chemicals can be produced and released by the brain when a husband simply looks at his wife or when she looks at him. It's all part of this remarkable, wonderful way in which God has created us. But sin brought along a catch. And the catch is that those wonderful chemicals in our brain can also be triggered by seeing or spending time with the wrong person. The wrong person, which would be for any of us who are not married, anybody at all, and for those of us who are married, anyone besides our spouse. Those chemicals can make sexual sins extremely enticing, difficult to resist. And for those who fall prey to them, even addicting, as the body craves more and more of this good gift from God, but without any regard or concern for the boundaries that he's given it to us within. So what do we do to protect those gifts that God has given us? We have to put into practice something called chastity. And I don't know about you, I I talked with Heather about it last night. I said, when you hear the word chastity, do you have the sense in your mind that that's kind of an old-fashioned word? I don't know why that is. Or maybe I do. I think it, it has that old-fashioned sense by design. I think that's what our society has been driving towards. I think our enemy, the devil, would love for us to think that the concept of chastity is something that's old-fashioned or, or worse yet, outdated and, and obsolete. But It's not. What chastity is, simply chastity is living our life in a a sexually pure way that protects those gifts from God of marriage and sexuality. God gives us some tools to help us do that. He gives us, first of all, his commandments. You shall not commit adultery. It provides a framework for the gift that sex is for marriage only. And marriage, he gives us a framework too. It's for only a man and a woman who have committed themselves to a lifelong relationship with each other, a relationship of love, cherishing, and supporting one another. So how do we protect those? Along with the boundaries, he's also given us the spiritual gift of self-control. Self-control, Paul lays out for us as one of the gifts, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which means it isn't something that we're born with innately. It's a gift that God gives to us. It's a gift that's going to grow as we grow in our relationship with God, this gift of having the capacity to control the things that we do with our body, to control the things that we say with our mouths, so that through what we do and what we say, we can honor and respect the gifts God gives us. But it's also the ability to control the thoughts that go on in our mind. And that, I think, is where we get to put self-control into practice the most, especially in our nation in our society today that has been hypersexualized. We're going to have opportunity, likely every single day, to work on controlling the thoughts in our mind based on the things that are in front of us that we see with our eyes or or hear with our ears. Anytime anyone or anything, whether it's a billboard, a a commercial, a scene on a show or or an image on a screen, anytime anything activates that sexual part of our human nature, we have to immediately start working on the self-control. And we're able to put the brakes on it. We're able to say no. We're able to stop and pause. And that's something that we have to do. As we practice it, it'll get easier and easier with time. We have to do it because, as the 10th commandment points out, even coveting somebody else, even having desires for another person in our mind, that's against God's will too. Jesus said anyone who entertains lustful thoughts is already guilty of committing adultery in their heart. So how do we control the thoughts in our minds? St. Paul says, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. It does not take long once something is in front of us, for our mind to go places that it should not go. So acting quickly is crucial when it comes to controlling our thoughts and protecting ourselves from sexual sins. We need to flee. As soon as we've identified the issue, we have to get away from it. And the circumstance might change what that looks like. It could be simply closing the browser on your computer. It could be changing a channel or deleting an app from your phone. It could be something as simple as closing your eyes. Or it could be as complicated as ending a relationship with another human being. Whatever the cost, it's going to be worth it. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away because it's better to enter into life with one eye than to go with two eyes into the eternal fires of hell. We want to guard over our thoughts, our words, our actions, so that whatever it takes at all costs, whoever we are, whether it's children or adults, single people, married people, widowed people, that we can, with all of our thoughts, words, and actions, honor and respect these good gifts that God has given to us. I thought when I got to that point writing the sermon, I thought about writing amen. And then I realized we haven't really talked about Jesus yet. There's a, a danger when we're looking at the Ten Commandments, because they are law, to walk away from a look at them with just a heaviness in our heart as we reflect on the times that we've broken those commandments. So I want to leave you with a nugget of gospel. Jesus had come with his disciples to Jerusalem, to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. And the Jewish leaders brought before him a woman who had been caught breaking the sixth commandment. They asked him whether they should, according to the law of Moses, stone that woman to death. And Jesus, after pausing for a moment, invited whichever of them had never sinned to be the first one to throw a stone at her. Slowly but surely, all of them turned and left and went away. And when it was just the two of them who were left there, Jesus, who was kneeling down by the ground, he straightened up and he looked at the woman and he said, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, they haven't, sir, she replied. And neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Now go and leave your life of sin. He did not condemn her, nor does he condemn you. Brothers and sisters, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Amen.